This is episode 32 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Daniel Harvey on virtual reality. Okay, can we start by having you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, firstly, thanks for having me, and thanks to the Functional First team for coming on the Pain Revolution. It's uh, great to have your media skills here. I'm Dr. Daniel Harvey. I'm a National Health and Medical Research Council funded early career research fellow at Griffith University. So I'm in a research group called the Hopkins Centre, which sits in the Menzies Institute for Health Queensland. So I'm a physiotherapist by background. Did my training at the University of South Australia. Um, so the, the history there of people like uh, Jeffrey Maitland and more recently people like uh, Mary McGarry and Mark Jones, um, who I did my Master of Musculoskeletal and Sports Physio with. Um, and it was at the end of that course that uh, I was, became really interested in, in pain and uh, Laura Mosley came to the university around that time and um, felt like fate, so I signed up for a, a PhD and I've been in pain ever, ever since. And tell us about what you were doing for your PhD. Yeah, sure. So um, my PhD followed on from uh, Lorimer's imprecision hypothesis paper, uh, which was was a was a hypothesis uh, around the idea that pain might be learned through associative learning mechanisms. So particularly classical conditioning. So it, just in the same way that Pavlov's dogs learn to salivate to the sound of a bell, the the question posed was could pain be a learned response to the things associated with pain or injury or, or nociception. So it basically it posited that nociception was a kind of unconditioned stimulus and pain was the response that was innately linked to that. So an unconditioned stimulus and an unconditioned response. Uh, so, the, so the idea or the question was could things associated with nociception become condition stimuli capable of evoking those responses normally uh, exclusively linked to, to nociception. Uh, so, so my PhD set out to, to investigate that uh, hypothesis and we, we, uh, we, we produced some studies um, that provided some support for that and also raised a whole lot of, of questions around it. And you've been interested in virtual reality. Can you tell us about that? I have, yeah. So, so I, I became interested in virtual reality in investigating that hypothesis because we thought if pain can be a learned response, then the thing that it's most likely going to be linked to is movement because movement is often the thing that is, that is so, so linked to pain. And so we thought that um, you know, almost the neurons that fire together, wire together, sort of a sort of a linking might result in movement or the, or the the kinesthetic signals associated with movement, for that they might be able to to become contributors to pain or triggers of pain. So, the the way we thought to investigate that was to make it look to people who were in pain, make it look to them like they were moving more or less than they actually were. And we hypothesized that their pain would come on sooner or later, depending on whether the, the, the visual signals suggested they were moving more or less than they actually were. 
And so we investigated that in people with neck pain and we found that when it looked to them like they were moving more, their pain came on a bit sooner and vice versa. When it looked to them like they were moving less, they were able to move further before their pain came on. And we explained that within the framework of the imprecision hypothesis. What's the history of using VR therapeutically in pain, pain management? That's, that's a great question. So it's mostly so far been used in acute pain management, really as a sophisticated form of distraction. So that's been used a lot in burns um, care. So for um, distracting people, providing some analgesia during um, wound cleaning type procedures. More recently, it's been explored in uh, in procedures associated with uh, labor in um, people who are giving birth or about to, to give birth. So there's, there's been a whole heap of um, acute pain areas that have, that have explored um, that. And then what about for persistent pain? Yeah, so for pers persistent pain, it's, it's a lot more complicated. Distraction isn't a practical strategy for tackling chronic pain in the long term, although some people might find it as a, as a useful retreat, perhaps for short periods of time. So um, this is something we're really working through at the moment. We don't have all the answers on it, but there are a few possible areas that we can move forwards with uh, in that space. Um, we know that things like mindfulness can be, can be helpful for some people, and using virtual reality as a more sophisticated form of, uh, of meditation might be one path forwards. So we can, we can superimpose visual imagery on top of uh, normal um, meditation um, procedures, put people in nice environments, those sorts of things. So that's, that's one avenue. Um, functional training exercise is another potential avenue. But the question we always have to ask ourselves is, does it add anything to do this in virtual reality? compared to doing it out of virtual reality. We don't want to use virtual reality just for the sake of, uh, of the novelty of it. Um, so that's, that's one idea that we're, we're working through uh, at the moment. Um, another is to, to use illusions, like the illusions I was talking to you before. So we know that, um, that the, the brain and the way it encodes the body can shift after an injury. And a, a question we have is, can we, can we tackle those in some way using illusions or some form of, of virtual reality? Can we target the cortical representations uh, of the body? There's some evidence, of course, that, that illusions might be helpful um, from as far back as mirror therapy um, for um, phantom limb pain, those sorts of things. More recently, we find that when we when we do illusory stretches of uh, arthritic fingers or knees, we find that people get at least temporary analgesia from those things. And they must be working, they must be having that analgesic effect via the brain. So we're also working through uh, how, what sort of illusions can we do in virtual reality and might they be useful. Our early and so far unpublished attempts at that haven't found a useful way forwards there, but there are so many possible ways that we can go down that track. Uh, another possibility off the top of my head is we know that teaching people uh, the science of pain can be a really useful strategy. Um, and 
something called immersive education or gamified education might be another way to get across some of those messages. So that's something that's a space that we're moving into at the moment, some, something we're doing some development in. Um, and, and even uh, you know, gamification of aspects of rehabilitation might be useful for assisting motivation, adherence, it's encouraging people to get going. So, but I'm, al I'm always thinking, do we need to do this in virtual reality? Does this add something? And I, I, as best as I can, try to use that as a guide to working out where to go. You know, another thing we think about is, you know, what body areas might be best suited for virtual reality? And that seems to be dependent on the technology that's available at the time. So at the moment, it's, it's quite difficult to get your whole body into a virtual space where you can interact with all parts of your body and see your whole body. At uh, this point in time, even the cheap virtual reality headsets, though, are, I think, at least well adapted for neck movements. So that's where I focus so far because the technology um, lends itself to uh, neck-related rehabilitation. Do you find that cost will be a barrier to be using this type of technology for people? I think cost will be something of a, of a barrier, um, perhaps not in, in the West, um, particularly as the prices are, have been coming down dramatically to the point where you can buy a standalone virtual reality headset now for about $300. Of course, you can get more sophisticated to the point where you also need a $4,000 computer with, with high-end graphics processing to drive it. Um, but, you know, so, so all of those things do need to be considered as well in the, in the process of developing this sort of stuff. Do you envision VR being used clinically by clinicians and patients? Yeah, I do. I, I do envision that. I don't know when that will be. Uh, and when we talk to clinicians, um, we really find that they want to they want to see that there's some benefit from using v virtual reality as as opposed to doing strategies outside of virtual reality, and they want to see at least a base level of of evidence. And we've asked that to a lot of clinicians in Australia now, and that's the answer that we get consistently, which I think is a credit to the clinical community here because I think that's spot on. What is it about? the visual part of virtual reality that is, uh, you know, compared to other systems like proprioceptive that it just supersedes it and leads to that, you know, pain reducing effect or... Yeah, yeah. So the, so the question, question there really is why, is why is vision so such a powerful modulator of um, our experience? And I think that it really comes down to the, the precision you know, so how much information vision gets us and, and how reliable it is as an indicator of what's really going on in, in the world. And, you know, something like a third of our brain is dedicated to visual processing. Um, so I think that, that gives it particular power as, um, as a potential mediator of treatment effects, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I th when I think about the hype around virtual reality, I don't just think about hype in terms of using virtual reality in the rehab space. In fact, I'm not sure there is that much hype for using virtual reality in the rehab space at this point. But even in the gaming space and other things, 
it still has a lot of limitations at the moment. Like it's completely antisocial in the sense that you, when you put on a set of headsets, you, you really do block out what's happening around you to the, to the point where even if there's nothing blocking your ears, you will tend to not notice the fact that someone is, is right next to you trying to talk to you. So it's, it's really antisocial, I think, when you, when you compare that to other forms of gaming, um, much more interactive. You can see what the other person's doing. But we are getting to a point where even with the standalone headsets, you can have second screens that show in real time what the person is seeing. We're getting to a point where you can be in a virtual space with other people also in, uh, in virtual spaces, not necessarily even in the same environment as you. So it, I think it will transition from a point where it's antisocial to where it's potentially even pro-social if it enables you to connect to more people in more spaces. Um, there's, also, there's also elements that we have to think about in, um, in rehab, like safety, balance, because people are, lose a certain amount of awareness of the real world. Um, so, so you have to factor in safety into that um, scenario as well. So there's a little bit of hype, but I think it's tempered by some of the limitations that we see in the technology at the moment. Where would you like to see the future of VR going? Well, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about seeing people with chronic pain get better outcomes. So if virtual reality is part of that, then, then great. That's going to help my research career progress because that's on the track that I'm on. But if we find that there are much better strategies outside of virtual realities and virtual reality is a direction of research that dies, that's fine with me because that's not, that's not what I'm here for. Um, but what, what I, the track that I'm on is, is looking at can we get some, some active-based approaches embedded in virtual reality in a way that facilitates treatments that we know are effective or that enables treatments that we don't yet know are effective. So I, I guess in that, I'm hoping that it opens up new possibilities um, that help people with, with persistent pain problems. And can you tell us about uh, the VR that you use in the brain bus and how you use that to explain chronic pain to people or what's happening with chronic pain? Sure, yeah. So, so basically the, the, the brain bus is, is there to get people excited about the brain, how perception works, and then linking that to, to pain as, as a complex perception like any perception. So in the case of virtual reality, sometimes it can be a little bit tricky to make that link. Um, it's sometimes a little bit easier with the other, with the illusions like the rubber hand illusion and some of the other illusions. But basically virtual reality is an illusion. It's almost so convincing you don't realize it is an illusion. But the fact that you can put a two-dimensional screen in front of you and completely feel like you're somewhere else tells us something about the way the brain works the way it constructs our reality from sensory information, from past experience, from all other sorts of things. So, so we use it to try to disrupt people's sense of how perception works, how their reality is constructed. And then we, we link that to pain as also a, a complex perception that depends not just on, on sensory information, but all other sorts of things. You know, another way of thinking of, of, 
of perception of our conscious reality is that it is sort of an illusion. It's a projection of our brain based on all the information that it, that it can gather and, and put together. And virtual reality is a really neat way of, of showing how you can feel like you're in another reality that is completely fake. Has there been any research that was augmented or is it too early for that? Because I know that the text a little bit slower on that side. Yeah, aug augmented reality is something that I talk about a lot with my virtual reality collaborators. Um, until recently, the most sophisticated form of that was the Microsoft HoloLens. Um, and we've sort of had it in the back of our minds that it, it, it's a potential new direction for us. But in its current state, it's been quite limited. So the, the actual screen sizes are really quite small, which means your, your field of view in, the, in augmented reality is, is, is limited to a box in front of you. The potential benefits of augmented reality is augmented reality doesn't block out the entire world. So you can still interact with real spaces while having additional um, um, projected objects in, in the real world, or projected into the real world. Um, so there's a lot we can potentially do with that. Um, just one example would be gamifying a gym program. Um, you could have scores, feedback, the objects that you interact with could be altered in the way that they appear. Um, there's all sorts of things we can do there, also without being concerned so much uh, about the safety issues of being in a virtual space. Um, so watch this space, um, but the, the, the limitations of augmented reality are slowly disappearing, so there's been some recent um, new releases, the Magic Leap has been one. A new version of the Microsoft HoloLens has just come out. I haven't caught up with the specifications of that. But the field of view is getting broader, capabilities are, are um, expanding. So yeah, watch that space. I, I just had a question about, so you know, you change the, the degree of, you know, someone's moving their head, the gain, I guess. Yeah. And how frequently would that have to happen for it to be you know, a consistent effect outside of a session of virtual reality? Yeah, so I guess my, my first answer to the question of um, how often would people have to train with an increased gain value to get a therapeutic, um, uh, a, a therapeutic response outside of that is, well, uh, we don't know that it can have a therapeutic um, value outside of that. You know, we can change pain in real time by changing gain values. Um, my first attempt at, at using altered gain values as therapy hasn't showed a sustained benefit. It's not necessarily to say that there's not a, not a way of using that for a, a therapeutic benefit, but, uh, but our first attempts have shown that it, it doesn't create a therapeutic benefit. So yeah, so we're working out whether to, to continue with that line of, of research or switch focus. Do you have other areas of interest with research? Yeah, I guess I guess broadly, I'm interested in in treatment approaches that target the brain, which could be anything from education through to things we can do with virtual reality. Um, I've also become interested in sensory training techniques, particularly um, the idea of tactile acuity training. So we know that um, often people with persistent pain 
lose their lose a certain degree of their ability to localize where sensations are coming from and we can measure that with tests like the two-point discrimination test to a, to a certain degree. So become interested in the idea that perhaps we can retrain that uh, ability and um, with the possibility that we can we can target the brain with that strategy and, and reduce pain. One of the limitations with that approach that's come out in the literature is people need to do a lot of repetition, a lot of hours um, training that and usually that requires a second person. So let's say that you're doing tactile acuity on a hand. You might draw a grid that has a number of numbers in it, take a picture, and then a family member or a therapist will touch one of the squares of the grid and the person in pain will look and they'll say, I think that was a three and I think you touched me with the tip of the pencil and then the therapist will give feedback. They'll say, close, it was actually the square next door, it was number two, and it was the rubber side of, of the pencil. So they're getting feedback about uh, where sensations are coming from and also the quality of the, of the sensation. So we think of that as getting better at discriminating the sensory information. We don't exactly know how that links to pain, but we know that in order to localize and discriminate sensations you actually need a lot of inhibition so you need to you need to you know you, we're, our brain's always being hit with a with a with a mess of of sensory information sensory signals and it has to filter that it has to inhibit information that's less relevant and highlight information that that is more relevant so in that process of training we think perhaps we get better at localizing through dis and discriminating by getting better at inhibiting. So maybe that's a way of, of training inhibition. But back to the, the limitation of that in requiring a lot of hours of training and a second person. Um, it's been reported in the literature that patients feel guilty taking their, their family members' time, they have trouble coordinating schedules, and at the end of the day, not enough um, training is done to get a therapeutic effect. So, um, so we, we've, we have this idea to create a, a device that people can take home. It's, uh, it's based around uh, rows of mobile phone vibrators actually that connect wirelessly to a tablet. People can play games whereby they get better at, at localizing um, sensations. Um, so that's, an, that's another direction that, that I've become interested in and have a PhD student uh, Nick Altoff, who's been working really hard on that, making it fun and engaging. Um, and we look forward to finding out whether that also has a, has a therapeutic effect. That's really cool. People also think it feels good, you know, it feels a bit like a massage. Um, we're not using it as a massage, but for that reason, people seem to like to use it. So, yeah. And we're also looking at whether we can use it as a test to identify whether people do have a decreased ability to localize, to, dis to discriminate. Um, and thinking that that might be a biomarker for whether people have changes in their somatosensory cortex that might relate to their, their problem. A lot of ifs in that, that way of thinking, but we hope that a, a device like this that makes it a bit easier, hopefully more reliable to test, and that makes testing whether it has 
whether this approach has a therapeutic benefit easier. Um, we hope that those, that might um, help us progress our knowledge in whether that's going to be a useful way forwards. Cool. Are there normative values for two-point discrimination in different body there are, there are some normative values out there. They, diff, they differ a bit from study to study and there are some slight differences across ages and, and genders. Um, that data can be found. I had an honours student do a systematic review of that now four years ago that, I'm sorry, hasn't made it to publication, but hopefully it will soon enough. Um, but still, we know that the best comparison, if you have it available to you, is the opposite side of the body. So Ben Wands um, found that, published that uh, some years ago. So if it's not a bilateral problem and you're, you're trying to gauge whether there might be some, uh, some um, changes in tactile acuity, then a, a comparison to the opposite side of the body is a good way to go. What about for areas where you don't have another side, like your back? Yeah, that's a good question. If there's an if there's an unaffected area, um, proximal or distal, um, you can use that as a bit of a guide. That might be a bit less reliable because tactile acuity differs so much across the body. Um, but you can use that as a bit of a guide, and if you wanted to, you could go to norm values to see how much difference you might expect between those different different body areas. There's the odd person where the changes are really big um, and in, in those cases you could effectively use norm values or your own, you could build off a bit of a picture of what's normal yourself. So in, in those extreme cases you can probably make a, a fair judgement call based on those other um, references. Um, you mentioned that could be used as a biomarker. Are there other biomarkers for pain that you think will show promise in the future? Uh, yeah, great question. So I guess I guess there's in recent years there's been a whole range of quantitative sensory tests um, that that I think will show some utility as time goes on and identifying um, the mechanisms underlying um, people's pain states. Um, I guess most interest in that area has been around uh, identifying who might respond to different um, pharmaceutical modalities um, so yeah I think I think I think the potential for that might be a lot broader um, but at the moment we need quite expensive quite sophisticated equipment to do reliable and valid quantitative sensory testing um, but that that's something to look out for as well I guess Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store. 